0: Hi, my name is Ali Reza-Mujibian, and welcome to Noteworthy. Opera in Reach is a collective dedicated to the advancement of opera through ensuring social equity, diversity, inclusion, accessibility, and justice in every facet of the art form. Born as a response to the BLM movement and the unmistakable problems that were brought to light as a direct result of the COVID-19 pandemic, Opera and Reach works to ensure that what sparked their genesis continues to inform their mission and their practice. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by two respected and much-loved members of the Canadian opera scene and co-founders of Opera and Reach, Andrew Atridge and David Pepper. I wanted to start our conversation today with a quote from one of your Opera and Reach mentors, Ryan McDonald, who said, "You can't be what you can't see." If I can ask uh, the both of you, looking at your own personal background and narrative, what does that statement mean to you? Andrew, if I could ask yourself this question first.
1: Sure. Um, That's such a great statement because I think it perfectly encapsulates uh, the reality of actualizing a path to existing in any art form and anything for that matter. As we know, opera is a, a musical idiom and art form that is so... Consumed and pervasive with this kind of Eurocentric identity, and coming over to Canada and in a country where we see such a cultural mosaic, it's difficult when those two things butt heads almost. It seems like we want this art form, in a way, to remain in it's in its kind of Eurocentric identity. At the same time, we want to make it a place where people can feel welcome. But that doesn't happen unless we're making active steps to ensure that every kind of person is welcome. Uh, as a young Black opera singer, I quickly realized that I was going to be one of the only people I saw around me. And going into the University of Toronto in my undergrad, again, I looked around the spaces that I was in, and it was very much not one that, on the surface, welcomed individuals that looked like me. I didn't know it then, but the the impact that it has to not see along the next steps, the path to belong, the path to actualizing a career, people that looked like me, I didn't realize what that was doing to me subconsciously in regards to my efforts in what I was trying to do and, and, and accomplish, and also in uh, my drive and my desire to even want to be a part of the industry. The path to actualizing anything has to be filled with individuals that look like you, or else you never really feel that sense of belonging. You can try your best, but really what I was doing, especially as a young singer, was trying to assimilate myself in a Eurocentric culture rather than finding my own culture within the identity of myself as an opera singer.
0: David, how about for yourself? You can't be what you can't see. What does that mean to you?
2: Oh my goodness. Well, I'll try my best, but following Andrew is always a tough act because he speaks so beautifully. I think I come from a different perspective of this. So, coming from a small town and being in a lower socioeconomic bracket due to the economies of these small towns, and I found for a while my place in opera felt very strange because everyone's in suits. And when I started opera, I didn't even own a suit. I didn't own anything like that or imagine something like that. And particularly my father grew up in um, Romford, England, which is a very impoverished area of England. And growing up in an English setting, he had a lot of feelings about classism and a lot of feelings about opera. Because of that, it took me a while to navigate that feeling of being in a classist art form and growing up with a father who resented that type of thing because he saw the oppression that it had of who you were related to, how much money you had, how much you wore even in a predominantly white culture to him, that was still very heavy. And I think me too coming from a small town and, and that's why for a while, while I was still studying classical singing, I was pursuing my pop career as I was previously a pop singer before I switched over to opera. And part of that I think was because I felt welcome in that scene. Cause there's so many narratives of these singers coming from nothing, winning American idol, like Kelly Clarkson, you know, like and having them be a star And that's not to say that doesn't exist in opera. It certainly does, but that's not the impression it gives off. When you go to these shows and you see everyone dressed up and behaving a certain way, and you see the people on the stage dressed up and behaving a certain way, it's hard to see that somebody from middle of nowhere, not having access to opera until they were (laughs) in an audition for a school, um, to figure that was something that could be for them. I think that speaks a lot to it. And then even with the stories we tell in opera, as a queer person, I spend my whole time telling stories often about heterosexual people. You know, being a tenor, I play the Duke, I play Rodolfo, and those are great characters who play beautiful music, lots to get from those stories. But it wasn't until my, like, eighth year of study at the Chautauqua Summer Program, I was given a song by Ned Roram um, with a text by the poet Paul Manette, and finally singing a queer story in my whole entire singing career for the first time was like jaw dropping to feel how removed I was from opera until that moment and felt how much I could be in it. And I was like, whoa, I've been like, felt like I was faking it up until then. You know, audiences can respond that way too. if they're, If they're not seeing themselves in the stories as well as in the people, how can you ever see yourself there? Is there
0: a definitive moment in your own journeys where um, you were made hyper-aware of your standing amongst others who fit the Eurocentric standards
1: and you didn't? Yeah, I definitely had that moment. And it was a big moment for me because I think it was the moment that I realized that I couldn't hide anymore. In my undergrad, I realized, I think, subconsciously that I was one of the only Black people I wanted so badly just to belong. It wasn't about trying to find who I was. It was about realizing that there's something here that I'm not. So let me do everything that I can to ensure that in those eyes, I can belong. I have some semblance of belonging. And up until I think my third my third or fourth year in my undergrad, I, I lived with this mentality. But one day I was in a master class. It was a musical theater class. And a colleague of mine who is white Uh, sang Old Man River. And I remember thinking it was just so beautiful. He sang so well, and he did a great job. And, you know, it's a masterclass. I had to sing next. I wasn't really paying that much attention to what was going on. And the clinician opened up the conversation, who was the clinician also who was white, opened up the conversation and said, how do we feel about the singer's use of damn and dare, the kind of colloquialisms that people from that time would use, also people, you know, we had actually an interesting conversation about this in, in our Banff sessions around the like dental status of individuals in the South and how that influenced their addiction. And the conversation led to, you know, how do we feel about his use of this, attributing that these kind of words and phrasings were something that belonged to black people. And I proceeded to watch a room full of white people kind of explain away why he was wrong or why he was right or why he was justified. Until the point when one of the audience members pointed at me and said, I don't mean to single you out, but how do you feel? Aren't you just angry about this? And I remember this was the moment where I had my first look around the room. I very vividly remember looking around the entire room and realizing that it was only me. And I had never felt that because I, for so long, had not wanted to feel that. I wanted to know that everything was okay. I wanted to know that... My talent was enough, that I was not going to be looked at as the other, as someone that was an imposter in this world that would never really be mine. But that was the moment where all of that came to a head. And I deflected immediately. I had to sing next. I just said made up something. I can't even remember if it was anything significant. But I don't think a day has gone by where I haven't been conscious of my Blackness first and my artistry second. And I think that that has propelled me in a way over years to finally get to this point that 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 was the moment where the 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 switch went off i think and said andrew this is something that you're going to have to either understand how to deal with or it's going to consume you i think that a lot of people who belong to minority communities and and oppressed communities in this specifically in this industry have felt a similar moment
0: David, how about yourself? Is there a definitive moment in your journey um, that made you hyper-aware of uh, where you stand amongst your others?
2: Yeah, (laughs) unfortunately too many, but I think it's in a a different way, obviously. Like when you're a queer person, you can kind of like blend in, like camouflage in sometimes, you know, you just like untuck your shirt and wear some loose-fitting jeans and you can be anywhere. But I find particularly some early experiences when I actually got on stage. Cause my first stage experience was in my high school musical where we did Rocky horror. <laughs> For some reason they thought that was an okay musical to do. And I played Rocky in that, who is obviously a hyper masculinized character with like some queer tinge because he's in gold booty shorts. So that was an interesting time where I felt like really comfortable myself. But then once I moved into opera, With this disillusioned idea that I'm like, oh, like musical theater is really cool with this kind of stuff. Maybe opera is too. But I remember, and I think the second opera I ever did was Alcina. And the director was always on my case about being more straight, being more straight because I was playing Orante, so I'm supposed to be the love interest of Morgana. And he was on my case all the time saying that I'm not playing straight enough, blah, 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 pretty much the whole summer. And then at the end apologized to me, but from that moment on, when I find myself singing characters that are hyper-masculinized or lean a little more that way. So a, a lot of tenors, unfortunately, um, I find myself incredibly uncomfortable and particularly I'll give like the, the Duke from Rigoletto as an example. It's a role that I love to sing. Suits me great. I, I just love it. And it's been something that people always push towards me because they, they're like, I hear this in your voice. I hear this in your voice. And then they, I sing Cuesta Aquela, and I feel so uncomfortable, and not just due to the subject matter, because as men, we are all subjects of toxic masculinity and have these ideas which we've spoken about before. So those are very familiar, but it's more so playing this hyper-masculinized, hyper-straight person with this super-straight song that I feel so exposed. And I feel like now they see me, and now they're not going to cast me, and like I've been uncovered it happens a lot this moment, but I can trace it right back to that moment in El Chino when, for a whole summer, I was told I wasn't playing straight well enough. Meanwhile, you know, I was like, Well, I've been doing it for 18 years until I left my small town, so I thought I would be good at it, but I guess not.
0: The shock of 2020. And all the abhorrent and no longer deniable problems in our societies was really the biggest catalyst many of us needed to make a real and definitive change with the hopes of having those positive changes ripple and compound in our social environments as a whole. How did the pandemic affect you both? And what sparked the conversation that would ultimately become Opera in Reach?
2: Well, the pandemic... Got me fired from Vancouver Opera. (laughs) Technically furloughed. I'm a drama queen and say fired as a joke. Um, (laughs) They kindly let us go and paid us more money than they technically had to. That's for sure. So I appreciated that. And they, you know, like many of these companies were so not ready for something like this. And I remember leaving and just kind of you know, having a lot of time on my hands to think about everything. And some of the stuff that I really took away from my time at Vancouver was the work that I did with their community engagement department, and even uh, hearkening back to the Opera.ca conference in the fall, where they had a huge segment on teaching artistry and community engagement as a big push for young artists to help bridge the gap from Young professional into professional while they're still trying to get contracts and working on their talent as a means to keep working, but also keep honing your craft and learning about it from a different way. And that's where kind of that seed was in my head originally, and on top of conversations that Andrew and I have been having for quite some time, even before then.
1: David hit the nail on the head. You know, I think that, and and uh, Ali, what you said earlier. You know, the pandemic really, I think was the point, the catalyst, the launching point that everyone really needed to really look inward at what is going on, you know, truly as we kind of live our lives and allow inequity and allow uh, inequality to just run rampant in various industries, various places and aspects of our lives and livelihoods. I think the pandemic allowed everyone to slow down. And it's so sad that It had to be upon the deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. But the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, took hold in a way that it would have never if it wasn't for the pandemic. People couldn't run away anymore. You couldn't you couldn't just close your eyes. You had to look because you had nowhere else to go. So I started writing, and I I started writing articles about young artistry and 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 things that young artists were, I think, have been too afraid to talk about and address, and you know the inequities around auditioning and how we're always demanded, like what's next for you and and being on this path, and and that's allowed other people to see that I was interested in these topics, and I was reached out to by some publications, and. Uh, eventually, uh, Ludwig Van asked me to write that piece on on my identity as a black man uh, in opera, and that uh, was, was almost all of what opera and reach, at least to me, meant. It was constant fear around uh, around not being accepted, not belonging, uh, the support systems that are not in place for me to really feel like I can actualize this this reality. And so, when David and I came back together to talk after, you know, the big, the first lockdown that happened sometime in June when we met, you know, these are the things that we shared together. It was, you know, David told me some of his story. I told him some of mine and we said, what can we do here? Because we all know that it exists and we've been waiting for too long for somebody else to do something about it. That's where Opera and Reach I think was born from really this understanding that, We know that there's an inequity, there's a problem with equity in our industry. There's a problem with representation. And there's a problem right now with how it is treated. And this kind of blanket, uh, band aid solutions that are put on equity and put on representation to make it seem like, and the zero accountability for that fact after those things have been done. We said that we can do better and we know that there is better. And if nobody else is going to do it, then it's going to be us.
0: How have you been able to put, this collective together in such a short period of time. Obviously the talent is there, but how, how did you go about creating this, uh, this environment and connecting all these members from all the different provinces?
2: Like everything with opera and reach, we really approach things at first holistically and develop a deep understanding of what we want to do, how we wish to do it, where we want to do it, why before we, we take action, which would be, kind of contradicts the optics of how quickly we grew but this has a bit to do with the relationships we have with each of the people on our team and the conversations we've had with them throughout the years not just solely through the pandemic but before that and about the conversations we had that really led us in the beginning because when we wanted to develop our team it was that balance of like let's not tokenize but let's make sure we have a table full of different perspectives so that each decision we make is thoughtful and considerate and compassionate and that all voices are heard. It's really easy to get stuck and think of like one voice at a time or the hot ticket, but by assembling a team with diverse backgrounds and experiences and perspectives really helps you make sure that you are always considering everybody when you're creating anything. So you don't have to backtrack. You don't have to go back and say, well, we didn't mean it this way, or we didn't mean to not include this or that. It was quite easy in a weird way to assemble these people because these were all people that we've had conversations with that were interested in going into communities and were passionate about the communities they came from. So all the people that were already thinking about this with us, even before Opera and Reach was born, they were already kind of a part of it. And that's kind of our approach and our goal is to create this network across the country and across communities of people all with the same values, but are separated by the huge geography that is Canada and separated by these weird cultural divides within our own sectors. There's so much going on everywhere. And if we only knew there were other people out there doing this work, it it would get done so much faster and become so much more of a priority.
0: On your on your website, um, uh, for those listening, on the Opera in Reach website, under the page heading What We Do, your manifesto is clearly and beautifully laid out. One of the m- rather more important notes that, that has stuck with me is we acknowledge opera's Eurocentric roots, but we also have become painfully aware of its need for a Canadian identity. What is the Canadian identity and what are your hopes and goals for 2021
1: and for the years to come? I think in America, an effort was made really to to understand how opera could be a part of the culture rather than alt- opera sitting on top of a culture. And opera started sounding like the music of America and, and looking like America. Opera in America is this jazz, idiom filled, lush, beautiful thing, romanticized thing that tells stories of, you know, the American dream or, or the girl coming from a small town going into the big city. That, that thing that is quintessential American life is something that's perpetuated in opera and continues to be told in opera. And in Canada, I think a little bit less of that was done. You know, this art form that, again, so Eurocentric in its nature, because it was born in Europe naturally, came over here to become something that continued to be this faux European thing with a bunch of people that aren't European, especially in a country like Canada that we talked about already is this cultural mosaic.
0: I mean, as a colony, we
1: really did our job perpetuating the British way of things. Exactly. Uh. <laughs> exactly. And, and that's reflected in opera so much, right? Even in our opera, we're not telling the stories that, is, that are Canadian enough. And when those stories are told, the opera was done one time and never again, or done in one part of the country and never brought to another part of it. We're not making opera sound like the music of Canada. I want to hear an opera that's bluegrass. <laughs> you know, I want to hear an opera that has folk music in it of, can- of of out east, which, I mean, it has happened, but I want to see it happen here. And, and more importantly, as the country has become increasingly more diverse, more ethnically diverse in this country that is so welcoming to new immigrants and for, to welcoming to people to come and start a new life here and identify themselves as Canadian, why hasn't opera started to tell their story? Why aren't we trying staging to tell new immigrant stories? Why are we not investing as much money as possible into understanding how we can get new people of different cultures to be interested in telling their story through opera, through being librettists, through being composers, through being stage managers and directors and dramaturgists? This is what opera needs to be in order for it to survive. Right now, we have an indie subsect of opera that has come up that is beautiful because it does everything possible to be the antithesis to what it thinks traditional opera is. They really want to serve the community. They want to understand the people that live in those communities. They want to represent them authentically on stage and everything that they do. But what has been perpetuated is that there are two kinds of opera one that's traditional and Eurocentric, and one that's new and is encompassing of equitable and authentically representative values. I'm happy to see the new music and the old music, but the understanding of Canadian opera has to be one in which every single person can actualize a path of belonging and believes that this is a vessel for which they can tell their story, or opera will not survive in this country. And we're not going to see a world in which opera can be everything that we already understand it can be as an art form reflective in our industries. What we want to do is to ensure that everybody can come into opera and say, I might not know everything about this, but I know that opera in Canada means that it can represent me and it will represent me authentically. And if I can find a way to practice and be a part of this industry, whether that be all the way from being an artist to being a philanthropist or just an audience member... I know that opera is something that is here for me as a Canadian that asks the question continually and never stops asking the question, what does it mean to be Canadian and are we looking like that in our stages?
0: Opera, as you said, has remained very much European. And so as, as Canada has grown up and as the ethnic populations have surpassed European populations, the art form is also dying because those ethnic populations aren't finding a way of making it making it their own and propelling it into the 21st century am i am i is that does that
2: make sense absolutely that's kind of why we community engagement i know this is my soapbox moment for teaching artistry and community engagement community engagement acts as kind of this like holistic census of sorts kind of like the diplomat from organizations that are cultural or community. And I've been reading a lot of this one scholar, Kim A. Johnson. She's a professor at the Queensland University of Technology, and she writes a lot of community engagement. Her main degrees are in business and marketing and communication within businesses, but she's done a lot of community engagement, strangely enough. And she speaks about the reflexive nature of community engagement. And this is one thing I've said on my soapbox from the beginning is that as much as, as it is for people to learn about us it's equally important for us to learn about them when you're coming from an organization, like you got to learn about the communities around you. And that's kind of the point of community engagement. It's not to evangelize where you go out and say, opera is the only music. This is your new music Buy. it's to go out there, offer some things, but also take in information from the communities you engage to then go back to the opera companies and be like, okay, so we are at this community today And they really want a bluegrass opera. Like that's something that's like people are actually interested in or would think would be really cool. So it's kind of this weird way of data mining, but also, you know, letting, giving people the opportunity to learn about opera, but also having opera the opportunity to learn about the communities it's surrounded by and participates in. If these organizations that are supposed to represent culture in our society, because like opera is supposed to be a cultural object. So if the cultural object isn't going into these corners and learning about also the other people, then it's just gonna remain its one way.
0: So moving into 2021, what does Opera and Reach have planned and how can people get involved? How can, because there are tons of opera singers in this country and we're all uh, waiting in our own way to see what 2021 can bring. Um, how do you want people to get involved and uh, how do you want them to propagate this message of reaching out but also listening in this brand new year, forgetting about all the issues of 2020?
1: We have a lot planned, and we're very excited uh, to be launching our, our first big initiative, kind of the cornerstone of what we are as an organization, which is our home program, or helping Operators new existence. This is going to be our program that we're going to bring to schools and community groups all across the country, uh, in which we're going to be teaching lessons that we call sessions um, that are going to that are these thirty minute or twenty five to thirty minute kind of lessons centered around a topic at an opera that also relates to a modern kind of world. So one of the sessions, for example, that David has put together is called Popra, in which he and Kayla Ruiz, one of our mentors, explore popular idioms in popular musics that have originated or found a different place in, in, in opera. And teaching the students something from a place that they're already familiar with, rather than coming at them with opera solely uh, in, in this kind of hoity-toity, if you will, uh, <laughs> <kind of> place. <laughs> so we're going to bring this program to as many people as possible, and and we're hoping to teach the next generation that opera can be something that looks like them with our mentors and with our team, something that isn't full of uh, the maybe the preconceived notions of elitism that they might have already with opera just by hearing the name and something that they can, again, find pathways to belonging in and, and, and find a vessel for creativity. So that's our first big program that's going to, again, encompass this a performance that we pre-recorded. Uh, thank you to Tapestry Opera. I'll say it out loud, uh, for letting us use your space and, uh, session and Q and A. And that's going to be followed up by our digital mentorship program, hopefully, for some of the students if they're interested, which is something that David has been working tirelessly on and giving him his props where his props are due, um, in which we're going to be bringing in students from those communities that we get to serve and from other communities to have one-on-one mentorship opportunities with our mentors, Whether that be from a level in which they are already comfortable with music, which is going to be a sort of intermediate level, or if that's going to be from a level uh, where they're just a beginner in which they want to come and learn more about opera and learn Even one little thing about opera, all the way from taking a lesson, maybe, or even just curating their own playlist of opera singers and opera music that they might be interested in. We want to provide students with an opportunity to not just get an experience with opera, but have something that might be lasting if that's something that they're interested in. Uh, This program will be uh, formulated with the understanding that our artists are coming as teaching artists. David made this point a little while ago our mentors you know some of them are educated teachers they they've studied to be teachers they're working as teachers in garments. some of them might just be performers and that's that's fine we're asking them to come in as people who understand that they have contributed to the craft in some way and they have a wealth of experience and they can transfer that experience to a new person so it's going to be something that's going to be very collaborative Allowing students to have somebody in their corner that we probably all wish we had, uh, when we were developing someone who could tell you a little bit about what the career is going to look like, who could give you some guidance, who can give you something that your teacher can't give you, which is a, you know, a younger perspective as to this is what the reality is going to be at the next level. If this is what you're interested in, or simply this is a little bit about opera. Let's see what you can do with it. Those are our two big initiatives that we're going to be starting up and launching them. We're very, very excited about them. Dreams for the future are plentiful. Every day, David and I have another conversation, usually led by me and my insane mind about all of the things that I want to tackle and do in the world. And thankfully, David is here to say, okay, Andrew, let's take a breath and really realize that we have eight things to do today alone before we can do your your long laundry list of things. But we're hoping to get a little bit into um, uh, into consulting a bit. We've already had conversations with uh, some organizations around becoming more equitable and putting more equitable steps in place and, and also digitizing in this world and what it means to, to modernize, but also kind of retain your traditional sense of your organization. And we realize it's something that we are passionate about also doing. And Another void in the industry to fill where people are going to be asking themselves, how can we become more equitable we're hoping to be able to provide some kind of framework for organizations that they want to come in and say, can opera and reach help us become a little more, uh, a little more equitable, understand our role in equity more, understand our role in digitalization and, and modernization a little bit more. So we're hoping to do a little bit of work there and, and really wanting to affirm ourselves in an organization. We started our CRA application and we're hoping by the end of this next year coming to be a nonprofit organization truly. It's gonna be a big goal and a lot of work, but we're excited to be able to legitimize ourselves as the the go to organization, not only in the minds of of people in the industry, but also on paper with the government <laughs> that says that we actually do this work and and we uh, we're dedicating ourselves to ensuring that there's a more equitable future for opera.
0: Thank you both for your time. Uh Thank you both for your commitment and for your vision. Um, the world needs more people like you, uh, and I'm I'm happy that you took the torch upon yourselves to to push forward um, into twenty to, to the, in, into 2021 and really make the world a little bit brighter with your message, and it'll go a long way. Until next time, be safe, take care, and uh, much much respect and appreciation for you both.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having us and giving people and artists uh, platforms to speak because that's really the reason why a lot of people don't speak up is they're like, where, where am I supposed to speak where people will listen or actually hear the things that I see? So people doing things like creating podcasts and platforms for people and working hard, creating questions and creating like using this Zencaster technology, figuring all of this out in order to allow people to speak and share their message is one of the most noble acts, in my opinion.
0: To find out more about Opera and Reach and the talented team of humans who are making it happen, follow them on Instagram, on Facebook, and check out their website at operaandreach.com. As we close out the third season of Noteworthy, I wanted to thank you for tuning in, for messaging us with your thoughts, your ideas, and most importantly, your amazing support. If you are a new listener, remember to subscribe, like, and leave us a comment on Apple Podcast. And don't forget to share Noteworthy with your family and friends. And as always, thank you to Duncan Watts Grant for editing and producing this show with me. Thank you for listening.